Hello, and welcome to the Scrum edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We're back with our panel of personalities and voices that have driven some of Canada's largest newsrooms. Caroline Harvey, Michael Cook, and Andre Pratt represent the best of the best in Canada's media landscape and will break down the way we consume the news. This week, we tackle three major topics, including the race that's heating up between Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest, the New York Times retweet from Twitter, and the way newsrooms take on global conflicts. This is Political Traction. Welcome back to the Scrum. I know it's been a little while to get all of our big brains in one room and the former heads of newsrooms. In the intro, we have Michael Cook, Andre Pratt, and Caroline Harvey. Thank you all for joining us. Um, there are many topics that we wanted to talk about. We've, in fact, been debating them in the behind the scenes a little bit before we started recording. So maybe I'll kick off with the most recent discussion, which is um, the Conservative Party leadership race. And we can obviously colleagues are welcome to opine on their thoughts about the leadership race. I've been pretty open about mine thus far, but I wanted to talk to you too, about how it's being covered and that leadership races are historically not really like the air war that we see in public is not as important as what the ground game, how the organizers are doing, how they're selling memberships. So just curious to you as, um, and it's also a very narrow group of interested people who care a lot about leadership campaigns, even though I'd argue this one is very important because statistically likely the next leader of the conservative party will be the next prime minister of Canada at some point in the next couple of years. So just curious to you as former editors, how do you approach covering leadership races and how do you see the coverage of this leadership race so far? Caroline, I'll, I'll go to you first. Um, I'll first have to comment on your confidence in that the next, uh, the, the, that the winner of this competition will be the next prime minister of the country. It's a, it's a nice statistics. You said in there, Amanda, um, <laughs> you know, I think that what is interesting from my perspective and not as somebody who is an inside politics person, but more somebody who thinks about covering politics from a news perspective is that leadership campaigns don't usually get that much attention because they're not usually all that interesting. So I, I would say that newsrooms probably are thrilled right now because it's playing out um, like with these two characters, um, at least the spotlight is most particularly on two characters and they are being pitted against one another, against one another in such a public and, and vociferous way that it makes for great TV and it makes for great sound clips and both teams behind those two leaders, both Sheree and Poiliev's teams are playing, are playing into that, which I can't quite decide if I think is smart or not. Um, at this stage, there's still a long time to go and they are typecasting their leaders and, and the leaders are typecasting themselves as sort of speaking to a particular portion of Canadians. And, and I wonder how that will work out for them in the end. I'm, I'm interested in what you guys think. Look, I mean, we're going through this absurd long race. I mean, you could drop a handful of corn in my garden and be eating a bread sandwich before these guys <laughs> decide who their leader is going to be. Uh, it's interesting to me that, that this is, um, it's not so much on mainstream media right now. It, it, and it's become more interesting than the usual leaders debate or leaders uh, race. But it's not on mainstream media. There's plenty of it on, on, on social media and plenty of it on the, on the political shows uh, on television, which very few people watch. Uh, but it's now popped up uh, because of the the, the, the internal war, uh, the the fish shaking, the spittle, the phlegm that's being exchanged, and that incredible, startling uh, debate between um, 
the two leading candidates. And we have to say, by the way, I think not 12 candidates, but we only ever hear about two. Uh, that may be deliberate and that, that will go faster. And I think we've got six more days, five more days to sign up the members, et cetera, et cetera. But that row on national television this week, which has been against spread by social media was extraordinary where these two powerful women who calling each other names, one accused one of giggling, the other one accused the other of being a liar. Um, and obviously they're proxies for the, for the masters, but boy, is this becoming more and more interesting than, than it's ever been. But we always say, don't we? We always say that, oh, we've never seen a more negative campaign than I can remember. And that's rarely true. But what makes this different is that it's, it, it's a civil war. Uh, so I find it fascinating. And uh, we're not hearing a lot about policy, uh, very little about policy. In fact, all we hear about is uh, Jean Charest is yesterday's man and Pierre Poiliviera can fill a barn. Uh, and that's about as far as we go in, in what the general understanding of the debate so far. And it's ugly. So it's funny, people, maybe I'm not as um, horror, like distressed or horrified by the tone of the most. But as you will know, as I, I really like fights. So I'm, I'm usually happy to run into one. Um, I think it's to me, I like seeing like, frankly, both Pierre and I to a certain extent Charest as fighters, although in the party, there is a lot of conversation around why are we beating each other up because and, and but the, the counterbalance to that when i've asked people for example on the polyev campaign is i hear well this is nothing worse than what the liberals are going to do to us so why don't we just get it out now like let's actually have that conversation which i'm like fair enough like you put the ad out or they put the ad out it's the same damn thing um, but, that, but that that noise you hear is the liberals laughing i don't think they've laughed so long so loud uh for a long time they're just laughing at the tories don't you think I, I don't, I mean, maybe, but uh, like, if I don't think they're laughing at 3000 people in Kelowna, like for Pierre Polyev, like I, if they're laughing, then they're frankly, they're idiots. Um, because... Right. But, we're, but we remember, of course, that Maxime Bernier also had huge crowds and, and, and forgot to sign yeah. them up as members. So that doesn't mean much. that's just noise. True. You get the memberships. And the other guy, Patrick Brown, who's, who's zero in this so far, he's claiming that he's selling more memberships than uh, Charest and Polyev combined. So yeah. it's about memberships, isn't it? It is. It's certainly about membership. So I would say the issue with Maxine Bernier is he didn't have professional campaign people around him. Yeah, not to be a peer. I'm not on the peer probably campaign, but the, the folks around him are very sophisticated and have like set up entire systems to bring people in to register them. That being said, Patrick, as we know, um, sells memberships like crazy, uh, both this, you know, in different ways that have come into question historically in different paths. So we'll see where that turns into. But I think I do think so there's. When he, so when he says, when he says, I've sold more memberships than all the other candidates combined, is it your instinct that he's lying or exaggerating, knowing the candidate as you do? I my guess is it's exaggeration, um, because I think there's an expectation that he will. I certainly think he's probably signed a lot. My guess is he's signed a ton in the GTA, right? And whether that is to you parlay that into a really good cabinet seat or a position in in whoever's government, or if he thinks but he, he's got significant org. I'm just not sure if that stretches beyond the GTA. I, and I haven't, maybe it does. Like, I don't know. Um, but it's also his big stick, right? He right. should, if I was him, I would be bragging about selling memberships just to keep myself relevant in the race. Um, because right now he's like, he can't get any oxygen compared to like, I think a really remarkable to your point fight between to like a Titan of the Canadian political scene, which is Jean Charest, right. And Pierre Polyev, who's sort of viewed as this upstart whatever you want to say, all of a sudden has come in with this quote unquote movement mm -hmm. out of nowhere 
<clears throat> that is the diametric opposite of him. I actually think it's a very, it's a civil war, but I feel like it's a healthy conversation to have as a party. Who do we want to be and have like two really articulate, interesting people to say, and like, and also like hats off to Tasha and Jenny. Like those are very strong women, both of whom are my friends. I think it's really great to see two women kind of leading, leading conservative politics. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was like, anyway, I, but I, as I've said before, I'm a person that runs into a burning building and really likes a fight. So <laughs> I'm not well, as much as well, and from a, strategy from a strategy perspective, at least from a media perspective, is that they have succeeded in getting the spotlight on them. I, I mean, I, th- I think that you're, you're you're right that it's been less on mainstream media, legacy media, perhaps. But and I think what's attracting the media is that the story is in some ways more interesting because it's not about policy. It's about identity. It's about who is the party. And are you going after your fearless populist or are you going after, you know, and, and I think that's something that everyone can relate to no matter what party you support. So I can imagine pitching that story in story meetings is that it's, it's about more than just a leadership race. It seems like it. And I think they've smartly positioned it that way. I'll be interested to see how it plays out, but Caroline, we're going to talk. It's clever. It's a clever strategy. We're going to talk about Twitter later, I think. But but staying going to Twitter right away. What do you think of the social media uh, commentary, which is which is building about uh, Pollyanna's crowds being being all white uh, and old, but but the M's being white? Do you think that's a little racial pointed stick going in there? Because I I, I wonder, like you look at the crowd and you go, yeah, actually you're right. They they, they do seem to be all white. Is that a point that social media is making that we need to pay attention to? I don't know if Caroline has a thought thought there. Um, I would say people comment on crowds frequently, like men, women, Uh, people talked about how diverse Patrick's launch crowd was. So to my mind, it's fair ball, right? Because you're talking about who you, bring along as your supporters and a lot of conversation as we need a modern political party and the political party should look like Canada, um, which is also like stuff when I've seen some of the charade visuals, it's of him in like the bridge club. Like, <laughs> so like, is there anyone under 50 in this crowd? Like, Holy shit. And it's fine. You have to do the bridge club events. I've been to zillions of them as a political person. Like those people vote and donate, but right. maybe don't stick it up on social media. Like that's, so I think certainly that to me is if you're going to, if you're going to try and find a weak spot in peers, I've got thousands, the weak spot is those thousands of people sure look a hell of a lot like your atypical voter. And how are we going to build the party beyond? Right. Um, you think, you think Jenny's running the Mulroney tactic of basically renting from booth and filling it and then claiming that it's a sellout. No, those, those are big rooms. Like even talking to folks about um, like the, Cal- the Edmonton, I mean, fair enough, you fill a room in Edmonton, but they're, I mean, you don't, you don't ever book a room, but they had an expansion area for the last event and I forget where it was. And they, they opened it up because I've done stuff with, with different candidates and you always have small and you have dividers and dividers and pipe and drape and all that shit, which I'm sure you guys have seen is, you know, you rise, you look behind curtains and see empty spaces and there are no curtains and empty spaces there. Um, I do want to keep us moving. So I do, you mentioned Twitter. So let's, let's pump over there. Uh, it's interesting to me to see this New York Times story, which I'm um, not New York Times stories, the uh, post story about the New York Times, which Michael, you had pointed out about how uh, the editors basically said, you don't have to be on Twitter anymore. In fact, we encourage you to spend a little less time there. And Andre, maybe I wanted to bring you into this first. Uh, given what do you make of that? Do you think journalists spend too much time on Twitter right now? I find it to be a very useful tool in my media, like 
evil side because journalists tend to tweet out their thoughts and the questions they're going to ask before they ask them like actually truly i hope none of them are listening because when i work for the mayor i'd be i just check all the twitter and they'd be like really <laughs> like they would tweet their like their themes of their questions i'm like this person's been tweeting about this this is the question this is the question this is the question so it's super useful for me but i find it a bit odd so curious what your thought is on journalistic use of twitter and if this is a smart move by the times yeah, well, I mean, the move in question was announced in, I think, three memos, if not four, by uh, the <laughs> leadership of the newspaper. So that was typically a New York Timesy way of doing things. But in any case, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, there are things there that I, I think I, I agree with. I, I, I think it's a good thing that the Times tells its reporters you don't have to be on Twitter. Because for a while there was not only at the Times but many other organizations, lots of pressure to be on social media, and I mean, considering that it's not that it's sometimes difficult because you get a lot of negative reaction and sometimes violent reactions. Uh, I think it's a good thing that they tell their their reporters and columnists and others you don't have to be you you can be if you want to, but you don't have to be on social media. So I think that in Twitter in in this particular case. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not reading into this that they're discouraging people from being on Twitter, but they are saying what actually we should be telling reporters of every source of information. Don't get your information only from Twitter, right? Uh, or, and the same could be said of, of, of polls, for instance. You know, don't get, for a political reporter, don't just look at the polls, also go you know, talk to people and see what's really going on behind the numbers in the polls. So the same is true of Twitter, right? You, you, I mean, it's a source of information. It's, I find it useful because it tells me what my colleagues or former colleagues are working on and the stories and what, what, what excites people and what is controversial. But I mean, I don't think a reporter should spend, you know, eight hours a day on Twitter or any social media or any source of information. You just need variety, right? And uh, so, I mean, if, if, of course, maybe the Times has specific problems with specific reporters or columnists who do spend their whole day on Twitter. I don't know if this is the case. It appears to be the case because it was a very formal warning for reporters, but the principles remain the same and Twitter or any other source of information. You need to consult a wide array of information so that you can provide your readers or listeners or watchers uh, the more the most balanced news that you that can be found. Why do you think, Andre, that reporters have been so seduced by Twitter and want to spend hours and hours a day on it? Michael, why do you come up with these questions that are so difficult to answer? <laughs> I think I think the, uh, the New York Times is editor's memo, and as Andre says, there was a series of memos, as there always has to be at the Times, was more of a lament uh, than anything. I, 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 I think he's saying, and I agree with him, and uh, perhaps we all do, that reporters need in general to rethink the time they spend uh, on Twitter. Uh, I mean, who can, and, and do some more reporting. Who can remember, for example, the last three big political stories that came out of Ottawa that anyone broke and the leak was a genuine story other than say Robert Fife. And that's what, from the globe, and that's what I think the editor is saying. Like, can you guys get off Twitter? As Andre said, spend more time, don't be so self-indulgent. Here I am in St. Peter's Square, Rome on the indigenous story and look at me, and, you know, don't I look fine? Uh, less of that self-indulgent 
minutiae of the reporter's life and spend more time reporting, interviewing, talking. Uh, and he's right uh, to ask that because, boy, we've been, the media as a whole, have been sucked into Twitter and we can't get away from it. It's as though Twitter makes reporters their own publishers without the benefit or supervision or help of any editors. And, and reporters love that. And, and often many of them look towards Twitter for validation of their own work. If the people on Twitter think they've done a good job, they have. And we all know that Twitter is a very small proportion of the Canadian public who are on Twitter and an even smaller proportion of the Canadian public who are acting on Twitter, which this is a bit of a tangent, is where the RCMP went wrong, putting out their alert for that killer in Nova Scotia and doing it on Twitter and imagining that the people in Nova Scotia would get their message. So it's a, it, in reality, it's a small minority platform, but, but has so much more power that overtakes the, their, their very size. I think that's, I mean, I think there's a few things, but I think that that's a big part of what the Times is saying. And, and I would say that in my experience uh, at CBC, that that's an issue too. And it's, we saw it with missing Brexit, missing Trump. It's journalists living in an echo chamber without, you know, hearing the, the right voices of people. I also think we can't underestimate the impact of COVID is that, you know, people really were like, I bet you if we took a look at it, people's use of social media, I'm sure it went through the roof in the last few years. And, and in part, it's because no one had anywhere to go. And I, I think that that's actually had a huge impact on the way journalists do their work. Uh, and I, because I think that we, in some ways, were confined to using their phone and, and maybe hard to get out of that. But I think the other interesting thing for me is this idea of brand is that, you know, is it the New York Times brand or is it the, you know, whoever the particular journalist might be. And, and Twitter gives you a chance to create your own personality and your own brand. And I think news organizations struggle with that. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure where I sit on it. I, I actually think we all agree now that journalists need to bring themselves to their work more than they have historically done. And, and if, if having a social media presence gives you a chance to, to build up who you are and what you stand for, then maybe that's a good thing. But I think that's a little bit what the Times is worried about. And when you look at risk, especially now where we sit at Navigator, most often when journalists get themselves in trouble is actually on Twitter. It's not on what they write ultimately in their stories or what they broadcast in their in their investigative pieces. It's actually the, the Twitter commentary when you pull it apart is when they can get themselves in, in trouble. So I, I think they're battening down the hatches. I think you're right. I think you're right about the brand aspect. It's all, all, all maybe use the word image or reputation of the news house that the reporter belongs to. Uh, we, can, we all know examples of where the CBC image and reputation and the Globe's image and reputation, and particularly the Toronto Star's image and reputation. And as you say, Carolyn, it's very hard to back away from that. Uh, I, I think the Toronto Star is an example of where reporters tweeting their opinions is completely out of control and, and, and damages the image of that paper. Uh, you know, when you have a, why should a reporter who knows nothing about Parliament tweet on the Star's Twitter about Parliament and their opinion on it? I don't, I don't quite, I think that's, that's very hurtful and damaging to other colleagues and also to the paper and eventually to themselves, but it's very hard to control. You know, it's interesting to me that it shows about the power of an editor-in-chief when the editor-in-chief of the New York Times put out that memo this last week, Maggie Haberman, one of their top journalists, tweeted 58 times that day. <laughs> I follow her. I love her. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's like a lot of. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I didn't want to just flip it a little bit because one of the pieces, it was interesting, the former, the former digital head digital reporter um, who left for the post came out and criticized um, the New York Times and the editor like pretty heavily saying, you're not protecting us. You know, this is not helpful. You're not protecting us as journalists on social media. And it struck me as odd in that how you are, I mean, you're choosing at this point now to put, and maybe if their bosses historically have been pressuring you to do that, I think it's fair enough to say you force us out there and there's no, like, there's very little framing around how to protect someone on social media once that, that ball is going. So you didn't protect us and this isn't going to help anything. This isn't a modern way of dealing with social media. So what about the mental impact on less on social media and those sorts of things, like the criticism, the aggressiveness from the public, like just a case in point yesterday morning, I was just couldn't sleep. So I tweeted like idly about the fact that I thought it was complete horseshit that everybody was losing their mind that chief medical officer in Ontario went on vacation and like the man deserves a break. And I swear to God, I have never like, and I've been threatened and all kinds of shit on Twitter before I had to mute the damn conversation because like the COVID zero amateur epidemiologist version of the world found me. And it was just unending for 24 hours. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I don't care. I, but like, that's a fraction of what a journalist gets in a day. And I was just like, Ugh. well, as, as, um, your, so- as your self-appointed um, counselor, <laughs> Amanda, I would, I, I would say this to you. Um, a, a Twitter is a pig pen and pigs love poop. And if you step in there, you're going to get covered in it. So don't go there. Well, I know better and than it's to very tweet hard about because COVID. The, I, I should have not done that. I don't do it anymore. And that's why. But anyway, go ahead, Michael. And women always catch it worse in, in the most horrendous, shameful, disgusting, cowardly, uh, mostly comments, but often threats, which have to be taken seriously. And, and news houses need to protect their staff from that and really need to have maybe a separate department in the HR department, almost a police department, tracking these people down, these shameful cowards that do this to female journalists and shaming them shaming them to their employers, shaming them to their family, shaming them live uh, or shaming them in the media. Because it's a shocking, awful thing for women to endure. And it's the number one thing that certainly female journalists complain about more than anything. And it's hurtful and it's a terrible, you get up in the morning and, you, and if you tweet something, you, you almost then open the tweet box because it's gonna be another load of, of, of horrendous, painful, insulting, terrible, debilitating messages. To the New York Times credit, they did announce in this series of memos an initiative. Actually, I think it was going on before, but they, they're sort of uh, emphasizing it or enlarging it, an initiative to protect journalists and help their mental health in the cases where they're, they're impacted by whatever goes on on Twitter. So they did uh, announce that. But uh, I mean, sure, they, I mean, it's... it's um, it's a concern and you always wonder where this anger, uh, frustration, violence in some cases comes from, but it, it's there. And I don't think it's a bad thing that journalists are exposed to it as long as they can, they can come out of it. And that's another problem with you know, being on social media all, all day is that you get a lot of that. And it, certainly it impacts your mental health at some point. It's impossible that it, that it wouldn't. And uh, again, I think that's the point of, uh, of this old New York Times exercise is that they're trying to, I mean, I, I've learned that if you want to be really popular and active on social media, Twitter or Facebook, whatever, your presence has to be very regular. You have to engage with your readers yeah. and so on. And to do this requires a lot of time. And, and I think that's what the New York Times is trying to say is just, you know, just 
stop at one point because it's going to have an impact on you, an impact on the times, and an impact on the work that you're doing or you're supposed to be doing. The other thing, Andre, to think about with Twitter too is that it's no help, in my opinion, it's no help for business. There's no direct cause and effect. But if you have 100,000 Twitter followers, your newspaper or your TV station will get more subscribers. There's no direct link to that. There's no money in Twitter. There's branding and all of that good stuff, but no direct link that, I could, that I've ever seen between the two. Carolyn, do you want to weigh well, in on the mental health piece? I mean, <laughs> so much to comment on that I, I don't know where to start, so I <laughs> No, but I just, I think that the thing that's hard for just pulling off your very last point, Michael, is that why people do it is because you're engaging. And, and that's the reason why I remember so well when social media became first became a thing. And at CBC News, it was, it was a, it was a really did tell people they needed to engage that way. And for some people it was natural and for some people it was uncomfortable. And yet it was seen as an ability to make a direct connection with the audience. And at the time, maybe not realizing how that audience would shake out to be, you know, a particularly focused audience, but there's a reason why it works is that it does feel like you can just say something off the cuff and you can be more yourself. And I, I think it's hard to pull it back now. I, I do. And I, yeah. um, I'm, I'm not sure how you do it, but I, I actually, at the end of the day, I applaud the Times for bringing it up and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they do have their journalist's best interests at heart. I do think part of it is about protecting against the hate. You know, you see CBC turned comments off. Facebook has done various things with comments on YouTube, unlimited, you know, public statement about why they were doing that and against criticism, uh, you know, stopping public discourse. But I'm not sure it's made much difference. So I, um, I, I, I sort of applaud them for doing it. I'll be interested to see if anyone follows suit. All right. So we're just short on time and I want to get to our last segment. Uh, we have had substantive coverage of the crisis in Ukraine, particularly around, and there's like, you know, I think Canadians are looking for how they can help, how they can support. And there's certainly been a zeroing in on, you know, refugees, welcoming them to Ukrainians to the country. And that makes sense, right? We are the largest Ukrainian diaspora outside of Ukraine and Russia. Um, so I, I get this also politically a good thing to be doing. At the same time, we had, you know, the war in Afghanistan, we talked about on the show and with this panel, um, there are, you know, significant refugees that I know people in Canada and including folks, you know, here that have been working tirelessly to bring <laughs> refugees here. And that's basically fallen off the page, despite the fact that I think the government is somewhat failing them on the biometrics piece and, and other. So I'm just curious to you, do you think we are failing or the country or the news news organizations are failing by not covering um, the Afghan refugee crisis to the degree that Ukraine is, or is it just sort of like the, if it bleeds, it leads and we're, people are interested in Ukraine. So that's why we're going. And, and Afghanistan is sort of yesterday's newspaper, even though it's still important. Um, just wondering how you would approach that if you were in the in the top slot. And maybe Michael, I will punt this one over to you first. Uh, look, I think there are so many unanswered questions on that Ukraine refugee, Afghan refugee issue that the country is looking at now, but I don't think we're looking at it closely enough. And I don't believe that uh, Ottawa journalists are posing enough questions and the right questions. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said we're going to take 40,000 Afghan refugees when we all went through that terrible, shameful, from Canada's point of view, exit from Kabul last year. 
We've had 40,000, I think we've got maybe 8,300 here, and yet we already have 7,000 Ukrainian refugees have arrived. Uh, why is it that uh, Ottawa is still insisting on, for the refugees from Afghanistan, still in Afghanistan, why is Ottawa insisting on biometric uh, ID identification and safeguards for all Afghans still stuck there? They need biometrics regardless of the demonstrated background, uh, which means no refugee visas are stuck there and it's very slow. Uh, and yet uh, we don't do the same things at all. We've, fact, we've waived those biometric requirements for Ukrainian refugees. So, and, and, the, and the way that that has been expedited, which I approve and applaud of, we, we made the commitment we should do it, but it's dizzying the speed with which Ukrainian refugees are getting in uh, fast to, to our country and, you, and Afghan refugees are stuck. And there's no government transparency on this that I can see. And as far as I know, not enough questions being asked. Andre, do you agree that not enough questions are being asked about this? Yes, but I think it's a it's a it's a larger issue. I was reading uh, earlier today a statement, or I don't know if it was a press conference or a statement, by the head of the World Health Organization, who's an Ethiopian, and was. Um, actually saying that he thought there was some sort of racism in the coverage of Ukraine compared to what the drama that is unfolding in Ethiopia, where there's a civil war in the Tigray region, and many people are starving to death there, and no one is talking about it. And there's a war in Yemen, and there's... So, yes, I think there is some sort of bias, and the reason is we feel maybe we shouldn't, but many of us feel closer to the Ukrainian because it's Europe and we're closer to Europe than we are to Afghanistan where the majority of us have never been. So it's a, it's a major issue. It's always been a, a, a problem that when you have a, you know, you have a terrorist attack in New York and it makes headline news and you have one in Afghanistan and no one here really cares. So it is a major problem. And in newsrooms, most editors are trying to, 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 fight this bias, but it's very, it's extremely difficult. Caroline? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you entirely. Andrea was going to say that um, I think that at the end of the day, you, you asked the question, Amanda, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, I, I think the sad truth is the answer to that is yes. And it, it just does. And whether it's this example or countless others, um, there are stories that should be told that just don't get the attention that they deserve. Um, there are stories that jump on top of another story almost instantly. You know, everybody's talking about Ukraine for a week and something else is gonna happen and we're gonna forget about Ukraine. And then people are gonna be asking those questions. You know, how is it that you filled the newscast and sent every major news anchor into the war zone? And then the next thing you know, we're not talking about it anymore because something else is happening. But I, I would say the other thing is, you know, we've been talking about how do you get your stories into the news? If you think about People call the, what's been happening in Ukraine as the world wired war. And I, I think it's actually so fascinating because one of the tenets of how do you tell, like, how do you tell a good story is it's like, how is it accessible? Can you get there? Can you show pictures of it? Can you relate to it? Um, I hate to say it, but like, is there a language barrier? Is there, there's so many different things. And this is like the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian people have brought their stories to the world and they have used social media, they have drawn the attention of world leaders, they have, you know, given speeches into the biggest political forums in the world. And, and that's what, that's what makes the news cover it. Like they've been creating more and more news and they've made it 
so personal in a way that as awful as it is and being somebody who has always been a huge supporter of international news and, and been really proud of being part of CBC's deployments to places where others don't know is those are the stories that get audiences. And, and I just, I think as awful as it is, is it really, is, should journalists be asking questions of Trudeau about making sure he doesn't abandon his promise to Afghanistan? Absolutely. But does that mean that it should be leading the newscast? I'm, I'm not sure. It's interesting, isn't it, how, Caroline, and I agree with you and, and, and with Andre, how journalists have had to almost weigh the body count. And, 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 and some bodies are worth more than other bodies. And that's been true currently with the civil war in, in Tigray, northern Ethiopia, where the body count, the rape count, is higher than it is in Ukraine, but we never hear about it. So we can ask questions, well, why is that? And you've given some of the answers. But it's also true that we have, a, as, as you both said, there's a geographic and ethnic proximity to those stories in the Ukraine that there isn't in other places. So for example, this is a cliche, but when the bus goes off the windy cliff road in Peru and 35 people die, that probably won't be a story. For us, the bus goes off to Scotland and 35 people die, it, it, it makes a story in, in, our, in our journalism world. So it's that dreadful thing of weighing, weighing the bodies and some count more than others. And that's a terrible thing to say. And it's a little peek into how the sausage is made and it's an ugly, it's an ugly process, and I don't know how to fix it. Well, I will say this podcast is all about with you guys how the sausage is made. So I appreciate that peak, even if it is a bit of an ugly one. Um, I am conscious of our time, which we have gone over as I always do with you. And I feel like I could talk to you endlessly about all of these topics. But thank you all for your time and your insights. And we will have you back next time. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Matthew Barnes, Adam Owen, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you goes out to this week's panel, Caroline Harvey, Michael Cook, and Andre Pratt. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next week.